Good morning. I want to take you to a very familiar verse. It's a verse that you might have heard throughout your whole life. It's a verse that sometimes elderly people give to younger people, and it just reminds them of God's goodness. It's a verse found in Jeremiah 29. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Jeremiah 29. Starting with verse 11. Jeremiah 29, starting with verse 11. And this is a promise to every single child of God, every son and daughter of Adam. Jeremiah 29, starting with verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. The search for God doesn't begin with a telescope or a microscope. It starts right here. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, this morning we just come to you as we are. We thank you, Lord, for a brand new day of life. Thank you so much for the goodness of God that surrounds us each and every day. Thank you, Lord, for your promises that are true for us, even when we can't see the fulfillment of them. Lord, we pray this morning that you would bless us, that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope you have your Bibles this morning. We have a very special sermon. It's one that I preached not too long ago at a camp meeting, and I'm really excited about it because I'm really, really, I really love the life of Joseph. Amen. Love the life of Joseph. You know, when I was uh, first becoming a Seventh-day Adventist, I worked at this warehouse, quite interesting. And uh, the, the head of this warehouse was this really strong, powerful Samoan man. Anybody know any Samoans? Yeah, they're descendants of the giants, right? <laughs> And uh, he was just a, a very strong man. I mean, one day I saw him. He says, Anel, come out to the parking lot with me. I went out to the parking lot, and his car was right there. And there was another car parked next to him. That the, the angle of the car parked next to him was almost touching his car. And he says, look what I do when cars park so close to me. And what he does, he backs his back to the car. He power lifts the car, moves it over like this. <laughs> and drops the car. And then we both go back in the warehouse, and I'm just, man, how strong is this guy? But it was really interesting. He invited me over to his house one day, and uh, it was very interesting. You know what Samoans love to eat, right? Barbecue. A lot of meat. And so when I went over there, I was like, ah, oh, interesting, right? And so the barbecue smell was there. And he says, I want to introduce you to my father-in-law. He's blind. He's been blind for many years. 
but he loves God. So I sat down next to his father-in-law. And it was interesting, though this man was blind, it was like he obviously sensed where I was the whole time. Even when I moved, he just knew where I was. And he was talking about the Lord, and he said, I wish God would give back my sight to me. And he says, I would serve him. I would do anything he's called me to do. And it was so interesting as we began to talk about the Lord. This man had memorized scripture so well. I mean, he was like the Samoan Randy Skeet, okay? <laughs> the guy was quoting it perfectly. And, uh, you know, he would turn to me and he says, uh, what's your favorite verse? And I was like, uh, yeah, uh, John 3.16. You know, I was just thinking of certain verses. And, uh, and I couldn't even quote them very well to him. This is right after I became a Christian. But what was so powerful is he just, he knew the scripture so well. He was going to an Assembly of God church. And this man, the way he learned the scripture, the way he memorized scripture was this. Somebody taught him the scripture because he could not read the scripture. And then he would recite it in his mind and think upon it a lot. It was very interesting. He asked me, what church do you go to? And I hesitantly said, I said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And I never forgot, he looked right at me, that direction where I was. And he says, ah, yes, Seventh-day Adventists. And he said these words, those people know their Bibles. Those people know their Bibles. Are we still the people of the book? Are we still the people of the book, or we're just called the people of the book? You know, there's one thing I want to challenge you for the rest of your life. Whatever your calling in life is going to be, whether you're going through ups or downs, wherever you are in life, never stop reading your Bible early in the morning. That, that, that action will sustain you the rest of your life. It will constantly grow you and challenge you. You spend time with God every single morning. The Bible doesn't say morning by morning, Folgers wakes me, wakes me up, does it? It says, morning by morning, the Lord awakens me. Amen? Amen? The best part of waking up? Is when Jesus fills your cup. Amen? Amen? So it's always important to spend time with God. You know, this morning I was reading the life of Joseph. I was just going over the entire life of Joseph, and I was just so blessed. Tears were coming down my eye, and I, I, says, I was just thinking about this beautiful life. Here's a man, a young man, who God really worked in his life and at the very end turned things around in such a powerful way. And yet throughout the entire life of Joseph, there was a lot of confusion, a lot of discouragement. Things did not go as Joseph had planned. You know what's amazing about the scriptures? The scriptures don't lie about the weakness of humanity. That's what I really appreciate. The Bible doesn't simply gloss over the faults of men. And it's at this point that we can actually identify with the scripture. That is why the Bible is a very relevant book. Unlike any other book like, you know, the Bhagavad Gita or the writings of Gautama Buddha or whatever it is, the Bible does not gloss over the weaknesses of men. And this is how we can connect with scripture. But what is so powerful is that the scripture also states how these men struggled through their weaknesses and overcame their faults. And we as well can do the same. Can you say amen to that? Amen. What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be taking a, life, a good look at the life of Joseph. 
Notice what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 39, starting with verse 1. Just give you a brief introduction to the life of Joseph. The Bible tells us he is the son of who? Jacob, right? The Bible tells us that God gave the promise of Abraham and Isaac to Jacob. And Joseph was the favored son of Jacob. Now what happens is this, is that Joseph has this amazing God-given dream. God gave him this dream, and in this dream, there is a, a, this sort of this experience where Joseph receives this greatness from his brothers. He sees in one time in this dream where his brothers are bringing the sheaves to him, and they bow these sheaves down to him. He sees another time where he's there, and the sun, the moon, and the stars bow down to him. It's almost kind of blasphemous. And so Joseph, being as naive as he is, he decides to tell his family, hey, guess what dream I had? Everyone was bowing down to me. And it was such an interesting dream. God gave him that dream. He didn't come up with this dream on his own. It wasn't like he ate pizza late at night and had those dreams. I mean, God really gave those dreams to him. And because of it, his brothers were angry. His brothers were jealous. And through a plot, Joseph was put in a pit. And this man was trapped in this pit for some time until his brother sold him to Ishmaelite traders for 20 pieces of silver. The Bible tells us that Joseph had been taken to Egypt. If you have your Bible, to go to uh, Genesis chapter 39, starting with verse 1. And this is where we're going to begin with the life of Joseph. Joseph betrayed by his brothers. Joseph not seeing his family for a long period of time. Joseph not sure about the future. And he's taken to a place of slavery. Starting with Genesis chapter 39, starting with verse 1. This is interesting right here. Notice what the Bible says right here. Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and who? Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now notice what the Bible says about Joseph. The Lord was with who? Joseph, and he was a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. He made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. This is very interesting, friends. The Bible tells us that Joseph was blessed. Now you would think about this. Here Joseph is cut off from his family. He's not sure about the future, but he makes this determination. Wherever he is in life, he is going to do his absolute best to honor the Lord and to work hard. If he's called to be a slave, he is going to be the very best slave possible. Amen. Now, this is something interesting because Joseph grows wherever he's planted. He grows wherever he's planted. You see, Joseph had no control of where he was at at that time. He was the favored son of this prince of the desert. And now he was a slave working for an Egyptian taskmaster. Master. And so here's the story of Joseph. And the Bible tells us something interesting. It says that God blessed him and he found favor. And soon Potiphar began to trust this man who wasn't even Egyptian with his whole household. Friends, I want you to understand something about the life of Joseph. The life of Joseph is a life of hard work. 
That's sort of an ethic that's lost in our day and age. Hard work. Joseph worked hard. If this is where Joseph was, he put his whole heart and mind into it. You want to know why? Because Joseph was not a man pleaser. He was not an eye pleaser. He was a God pleaser. He knew God had put him in that spot, and he was going to do his very best to honor the Lord. You know, I came across this quote in Ellen White's writing one day, and it blew my mind away. This is what it says. So today, while the humble worker for God is following his what? Employment. In other words, he's just humbly doing his employment. Angels of God stand by his side, listening to his words, noting the manner in which his work is done to see if larger responsibilities may be entrusted to his hands. Friends, the Bible tells us that God gives us talents, right? By the way, the guy that had one talent, how many talents did he make? None. The guy that had uh, two talents, how many talents did he make? Four. Four. The guy that had five talents, how many did he make? Six more. Remember he was given another talent in addition to the one that he made? You know, friends, when we're faithful in the little things, God will bless us in the big things. You know, we look at these majestic, powerful rivers, but these majestic, powerful rivers have many tributaries to them. The reason why they are the way they are is because of the little things that are present. Friends, God calls us not just to be faithful in the big things, but to be faithful in the little things. And as we're faithful in the little things, angels of God will be by our side. You see, they're not just recording our bad behavior or good behavior. What they're doing is noting whether or not you are ready for greater, larger responsibilities. Friends, Joseph did not seek after greatness. He sought after faithfulness. But the byproduct of faithfulness is greatness. Greatness. Joseph was faithful in all that God had called him to do. You know, it's very interesting when you continue to read the rest of this story. Joseph gets betrayed by Potiphar's wife. And by the way, you know what's so interesting? When you actually study out the life of Joseph, every new shift or phase in Joseph's life is preceded by a change of clothing. Remember he was wearing the robes of many colors? It gets taken away. Now he's wearing slave clothes. Who took away his slave clothes? Potiphar's wife. And then he had prisoner's clothes. And do you know who took away his prisoner's clothes? Pharaoh, until he had those royal robes. And those robes represent a new switch or change in Joseph's experience. His intellectual, his physical, and his spiritual development change uh, with the clothing. It's very interesting. So when you're looking at the life of Joseph at this moment, he gets betrayed by Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into prison. Now notice this. Now from being a slave, he's now a what? Prisoner. But do you know what Joseph does in prison? The exact same thing he did when he was a slave. If this is where he is at at this time in his life, he is going to do the very best possible. You know, friends, oftentimes the reason why we're not happy in our life today is we're constantly trying to live in the future. We're constantly trying to live in the next opportunity where God calls us to take uh, advantage of the opportunities he has given us today. Can you say amen to that? 
And so Joseph, he was faithful wherever God had called him. Now he was called to be a prisoner. And so you know what he decided? He is going to be the very best prisoner possible. And while he's in prison, the same things that happened to him when he was a slave happened to him as a prisoner. The prison guard was so surprised by Joseph's faithfulness that he actually made Joseph an overseer of the other prisoners. You know, and it was in that moment of faithfulness that Joseph came across a butler and a baker. And these two men were distraught. And the Bible says these words that Joseph walked up to them one day and said, why are you sad? And the butler begins to explain about a dream that he had after he was thrown in prison. The baker begins to explain the dream that he had and how he was thrown in prison. And do you know what Joseph does? He helps the butler out with his dreams. He tells the truth to the baker. And at that moment, the butler is freed and he goes back to Pharaoh. The baker is killed. But the Bible then tells us something interesting. Sometime after that, Pharaoh begins to have a strange dream. Pharaoh has a strange dream about these cows. And the Bible tells us that these cows, these sickly cows, begin to eat these healthy cows. And Pharaoh keeps having this reoccurring nightmare and he wakes up like Nebuchadnezzar. And so he calls for his magicians, his astrologers, his Jedi Knights, and his, you know, Harry Potters, and none of them can help him. They can't help this man because they have no power that comes from God. Can you say amen to that? At that moment, the butler says, I remember my faults, and we're getting somewhere with this. And then he says, there is a man who can help. And soon, Joseph is brought before Pharaoh as his clothes are taken off. He's given royal robes. Now notice this. He then helps Pharaoh with his dreams. And it's at this moment that Joseph is exalted. Now watch what happens here. It is only when Joseph helps other people with his dreams, their dreams, that his own dream becomes fulfilled. He helps the butler with his dream, the baker with his dream, and Pharaoh with his dream. And in process of helping these others with their dreams, his dreams of greatness, God-given greatness, become fulfilled in due time. Friends, the challenge is to us. We're not here to serve ourselves. Amen? Amen? The Bible tells us about Jesus, that he did not come here to be served, but to serve. When you actually study out the Greek, the Greek word for serve is the word dikanos, where you get the word deacon. Jesus did not come to be deaconed to. He came to be a deacon to others, a servant to others. And as, as we carry out God's plan to help and bless others, that God blesses us in return. For many years in my life, the reason why I'm going to share my testimony and how I became a Christian for many years in my life, I was horrible at education. I hated education. I despised education. I saw no purpose in education. And it's only when I became a Christian, I came across this book called Education. You ever read this book? Yeah. Education, go figure, right? And I was going through the end of that book, and it talks about the great purpose of education, two great purposes. Number one, to honor God and to help humanity. And soon I had this recalibration of the very purpose of education. Now I love education. 
I'm continually being educated. I want to be educated the rest of my life. Amen? But this is something so important to understand. If our life is for ourselves, it will end up in pain, destruction, and sorrow ultimately. Remember what I said yesterday during my seminar? If you type in the word chief joy in Ellen White's writings, she says the chief joy of heaven is to help make other people happy. That's what it says. The chief joy of heaven is to make others happy. They find happiness in making other people happy. And so Joseph's dreams were fulfilled as he went about fulfilling other people's dreams. Now let's take a good look at what happened when Joseph came across Pharaoh. The Bible tells us this, that the problem of Pharaoh was there was going to be seven years of famine. Seven years of famine that were about to strike Egypt. By the way, anytime God, anytime uh, um, there's a famine over the land, I give you a little bit of a hint, who usually is behind that cause? God. And what is the purpose? What would you call that in one word? I'll give you a clue. It starts with the J. It's a judgment. God started famines as a, a, a way of saying, look, there's judgment. God was obviously behind this famine that struck Egypt. Seven years it was going to hit Egypt. And so at this moment, this is very interesting. Joseph tells Pharaoh, hey, this is what this means. This is what your dream means. This is going to be the prophecy. But notice this, he didn't stop right there. He didn't just walk away and said, good luck, Pharaoh. Did he do that? This is super important. Joseph was not prophecy's problem causer. You know what he does next? He begins to give Pharaoh a solution. He was prophecy's problem solver. In fact, notice what he tells Pharaoh. Let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint the officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh. And let them keep food in the cities. Then let that food be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt that the land may not perish during the famine. And Pharaoh was so impressed by this, he says, look, there's only one man who has the wisdom to do this. And who is that man? Joseph. Joseph. Remember what I said to you? Joseph was not prophecy's problem causer. He was prophecy's problem solver. You know, friends, we are called to be problem solvers. We are called to be solution people. Let me give you an example of a solution person. One day I was getting some transcripts to my college. And I called, I picked up the phone, and I said, hey, yeah, I need to get some transcripts. I need to take care of this and that. And the person just said to me, sorry, you're past the deadline. And I said, well, is there anything that can be done? Nope. I said, are you sure? I mean, can we talk to somebody else? Absolutely not. Are you sure? Won't do you any good. You're past the deadline. Sorry. I said, okay. Hung up the phone. I said, Lord, what do I do? I prayed, I waited. This is something always good to do, by the way. You call an hour later. <laughs> Picked up the phone, it's a different person. I said, hey, here's my situation. I never forgot the way that person responded. Okay, let's figure out a solution. 
Okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to try this route. I want you to call this phone number. I want you to talk to this person. I'm giving you the name. I'm going to contact that person ahead. I said, okay. And he said, if that doesn't work, I want you to come into my office. We're going to figure out how we can get this done. We are going to make this happen. And I thought to myself, wow, there are two types of people in this world. There are solution people, and then there are not. We are called to be solution people. You know when I finally had this switch in my life? I, I was working for this man. His name is Steve Hamilton. He's actually a youth director in Colorado. And uh, Steve Hamilton was like a mentor to many of the people in ministry in California, Central California, for many years. The guy is a very, very resourceful man. He can take a boat and turn it into a four-wheel drive vehicle. Anyways, one day he asked me to do something. I was several hours away, and I responded like this. I don't think I could do that. It's not possible. Because when you look at it, I mean, if, if you actually look at the situation, it's just not going to happen. And I never forgot what he said to me. He said these words. I know I noticed something you just said. I said, what? He said, you said the word if. You need to stop saying that word if. And you need to start saying the word how can it happen. At that moment, it was like something turned on in my brain. I had spent my life being what I call a problem person. Either I was causing problems or I walked away from problems. I saw obstacles, I saw challenges, and I said, nope, not going to happen. I was a problem person. And it was at that moment that I realized, wait a minute, I have been spending my life being a problem person. I need to become a solution person. By the way, when you actually study up the life of Christ, does anybody know when his first miracle began? It was at a wedding, right? The wedding at Cana. Read it in John. Do you know what happens during that wedding? They run out of Welch's grape juice, don't they? They run out of grape juice. Well, that's what it says in one translation. They run out of grape juice, right? And do you know what the mother tells Jesus? She says these words. They ran out of the wine. Now notice this. She tells Jesus the problem. She almost like says, what should we do? She even tells the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Let me ask you a question. He had not done a single miracle up to that point. Why in the world would Mary give the problem or dilemma of the wedding to Jesus? Because what kind of person was he? He was a solution person, wasn't he? Even before he had done a single miracle, he was somebody who solved problems, difficulties. You know, in our world today, there are many dilemmas. There are many problems, aren't there? People all over the world are looking for God-given solutions, and they don't know where to go. People are striving to understand things better. It was very interesting. Um, I worked for a church plant, and we started a church plant out of our church. And we decided we were going to do health-based ministries. So we approached the city. And it was so interesting. The city was so excited. They said, we've been looking for a faith-based ministry that does health. Where else are you going to find a faith-based ministry that does health, right? So, well, we're here. And they said, and they were so just intense about the whole situation. They said, could you do a cooking school for us? Wow. Sure, right? This is the funny part. They said, 
do you need six to 12 months to get that thing ready to go? <laughs> you know, there's one thing about Adventist churches. They know how to do cooking schools. I mean, every Sabbath during potluck, it's a cooking school, isn't it? They put things together that are just miracles, right? I mean, think about it. The reason I'm bringing this up is because the city had this red tape and this bureaucracy that slowed the process down of doing anything good for the city. There was a lot of problems. I mean, even during the, the, the various city, uh, the town hall meetings, I would turn to the Bible workers and I said, I want you guys to pay attention to this. This is why nothing is getting done in the city here. And so we told them, well, we can do a cooking school. They said, how many months do you need? I said, we can do it in like two or three weeks. And they're like, what? <laughs> they were quite shocked and surprised by that. And they paid for the whole thing. They paid for many of our health events, you know. I say this because they were looking for solutions. The world is looking for solution. In Adventism, the religion you are a part of, it is full of many solutions for this world. And God calls you to be a solution person to this world of problems. Another case, um, point, I actually, um, you know, I, I love working out. I love weightlifting. I love exercise. I love different forms of just, you know, getting out there, physical activity. And uh, it was interesting, you know, growing up, I, I, I didn't grow up a, a Seventh-day Adventist. I grew up as a Hindu, but I grew up as a vegetarian because of Hinduism. I'll share, the, share about that tonight. And uh, I would always go to GNC. GNC is the worst place, by the way, to get your supplements. It's a waste of money. Waste of money. You can record that and put that as an official quote. You go in there and they will send you, sell you $60 of this toxic waste dump. It's called protein powder or it's called weight gainer. That stuff is like putting concrete in your body. It's absolutely toxic for you. I mean, there's a reason why these huge bodybuilders are now getting cancer age 40 and 50. They're putting junk in their bodies. And I would do that for many years. I would be like, man, I want to be like this guy. I want protein. And I would go and I'd be just duped by the GNC people. And they would say, yeah, you can buy this. And I'd walk out with $60 of this like tub of, I don't even know what it was. And I would take this stuff. And finally I decided, you know what? I don't want to put this stuff in my body. It's just not good for my body. And so I decided, you know what? I'm going to try vegan protein powder. Last few years I was doing vegan protein powder. And I thought to myself, you know what? I really don't like this. It's too expensive. I mean, they were selling this half size of the regular protein powder for the exact same amount, like $40, $50. So I was thinking, this is actually ridiculous. And I'm just using this as an example. So I thought to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to make my own vegan protein powder. And I did. I made my own vegan protein powder. I even, you know, dehydrated some kale and some spinach so I had that green powder mixed in there. I took the highest protein amount of, of seeds, sunflower seeds and um, pumpkin seeds, and I grinded it down. And I took this protein powder, and I, and I tried it. And I'm, oh, this is absolutely delicious. Doesn't give you the mind fuzz. Doesn't mess up your digestive system. Sounds like an advertising, but it's not, okay? <laughs> so I did this. And then I had a friend who, who, who does, like, biking. He does road biking. He does 30 to 40 miles every other day in hills. And I said, hey, man, I want you to try this. I want you to tell me what you think. He absolutely loved this stuff. He says, man, I have sustained energy. Again, I do sound like a commercial, but I'm not, okay? 
He gave it to his wife. His wife loved the stuff. Then I gave it to my friend who also is a weight, uh, weightlifter. He loved the stuff. And I was thinking, man, this is okay. We're going somewhere with this. So I put it on Instagram one day, and I said, hey, I made my own protein powder. Not advertising, okay? And then I did, I did a hashtag. I said, plant-powered, vegan protein powder. That was it. You think, okay, what's the big deal? I started getting these messages from people. And you know what they said? They said, we have been looking for a vegan protein powder. Can we buy it? I said, I'm not selling the stuff. I got another message, another call. Even before I came here, I got this call. Someone's like, hey, man, I heard about your vegan protein powder. I'd like to try some. I'm like, who are you? Where did you get a hold of me? And, I, and I'm saying this because people in the world are looking what Ellen White says as, what she describes as, something better. Something better. Something better. Adventism is something better. And so when we're, when we're going out sharing the health message or we're sharing the beautiful gospel truth, you know what we're sharing? Something better. That's right. And so like Joseph, who was a solution person, God calls us to be solution people, solution people to the world that is full of dilemmas and problems. They are searching for answers, and God has given to us the beautiful truths that contain the answers to the world's problems. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Friends, this is so powerful. You are called to be a solution person. Now ask yourself the question, how can I be a solution person? You know, it's very interesting. I have a good friend, and we love doing stuff. Um, we, we've done survival schools together. We have gone out into the wilderness. We just love the outdoors. Uh, we went camping not too long ago. And on the way there, my friend chose the audio book. You guys know what an audio book is, Audible, right? And he had purchased this book. It was called Survival Experiences. And I thought, okay, whatever. You know, we're listening to it. And much of the book was a description of people who died in the wilderness. <laughs> and so as we're driving to go camping into a wilderness to a place we've never been, we're listening to this audio book about people who have perished in the wilderness. <laughs> and so while we're there, we're, I was just thinking, I even turned to him, I said, why are we listening to this, man? And we just continued to listen to it. And it was so amazing because what the author began to describe was solutions. He says, this is why these people died in the wilderness. They didn't have solutions. And so me and my friend Andrew began to talk. We talked about solutions. And there are wilderness survival experts that have come up with an acronym for what takes place. I love acronyms. I love alliteration. Right? You probably noticed. Anel absolutely adores acronyms and alliterations. And this acronym is what you should remember if you're ever in a dilemma or a problem. It's called PROP, P-R-O-P. Stuck out in the middle of the wilderness. Remember, P-R-O-P, PROP, P, assess your problem. R, find out what resources you have. O, what are your options? And then P, prioritize those options. And of course, everything in prayer, amen? amen. Well, we talked about this solution. What is that? Okay. Well, what's the exact problem? What exactly is the problem here? Okay, what are the possible resources? What are options here? And let's prioritize which options should work, and let's just go through these options, right? 
And it's very interesting, friends, because I say this, whenever situation that we are in, whatever dilemma we find ourselves in, if God has brought us to that problem, then we need to prayerfully say, okay, God, what do you want me to do with what you have given to me? And we start figuring out a game plan, and I promise you, God will bless you. God is the ultimate problem solver. Can you say amen to that? The gospel is the solution to the problem of sin. Now let's continue with this story. You guys know the story of Joseph. He becomes second of all of Egypt. And he begins to save Egypt through the God-given plan that he had. And the Bible says something interesting, that Jacob, who was in the land of Canaan, was suffering part of, they were, they were a part of this famine. And so they ran out of food. All the brothers of Jacob came to their father and they said, we have run out of food, but we heard there's food in Egypt. So a plan was made. And this is what the Bible says right here. This is what Jacob says. He said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not what? Die. Die. So notice this. When Joseph was a slave, could he have visited his family? When he was a prisoner, could he have visited his family? But when he became second of Egypt, do you think he had potentially freedom to find his family? But he did not. Because there's something Joseph realized. God had put him in that place, and he knew the time was not right. And God, in his providence, would bring things around. So he said, I'm going to be faithful. By the way, if you study Matthew chapter 11, you know it's very interesting. When Jesus sends his disciples out to go preach the gospel, you know what the Bible says? Jesus went to their towns. Notice this. When he sent the disciples to go do his work, accomplish his will, Jesus took it upon himself to go visit their towns, their families. So there's something Joseph understood. He said, I'm going to be faithful. If this is where I'm at, I'm going to be faithful. I know God will bring things about. And sure enough, the brothers of Joseph end up in Egypt. And through a a wonderful um, sequence of circumstances, which I highly recommend you read about, Joseph is revealed before his brothers. But it was during that time when things began to happen during that famine that Jacob said something interesting in that time of distress. He said these words, all these things are against me. All these things are against me. My son Joseph is dead. Reuben has been captured by the Egyptians. And now you want to take my son Benjamin? He was telling that to the brothers. He said, all these things are against me. But what Jacob did not realize is that God was actually working out a great plan for Jacob. The things that sometimes seem to be against us are things that God is actually using to accomplish our greatest blessings. And you know what's interesting? Do you know how old Joseph was when he was taken from Jacob? 17 years old. 17 years old. Don't forget that. How old was he? 17 years old. And so he finally comes to Egypt, and there he sees his son, or he sees his son. Can you imagine that just emotional reunion? His son, he thought, was murdered by an animal. Can you imagine that moment, that reunion? The Bible says he wept a great while. 
This old patriarch is seeing his son, his favorite son, who he thought had died. Many years he lived with that sadness. But he did not know that God had greater plans for him. You know what's interesting at this moment? The Bible says something powerful. Take your Bible, go to Genesis. After Joseph is reunited with Jacob, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 47, starting with verse 27. When Jacob is reunited with his father, this is really powerful. Genesis chapter 47, starting with verse 27. This is powerful stuff. Are you all there? Okay. So Israel dwelt in the land of what? Egypt. In the country of Goshen. And they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Notice this next part. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt. Do you know what Jacob's favorite 17 years of his life was previously to this moment? It was his time with his son Joseph. And do you know what God does? He gives him back the best years of his life. Jacob dies at the end of these 17 years. Listen to what I say when I say this, and this is going to be something you should never forget. In the end, you will find the beginning. In the end, you will find the beginning. And this is a story of how one man surrendered himself to the providence of God, though his life did not make sense, full of discouragement. You see, the reason why Joseph was a slave and the reason why he was a prisoner is because when he became the head of Egypt, second in charge of Egypt, the workforce of Egypt was its prisoners and its slaves. God had been preparing Joseph through the long, arduous route for an amazing moment of providence. His whole life was being prepared to deliver Egypt, to deliver his family. In the end, you will find the beginning. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future, and in some translations, an expected end. It starts when you say, Lord, you're in charge of my life. This moment, I'm giving you my will. Oftentimes in our experience, we say that, God, I'm giving you my will, I'm giving you my life, then we take it back. But let this moment, this time, be an experience where you're saying, God, 
take my life. Fulfill your purposes and plans. The God-given dreams. You know, the Bible tells us in Scripture that love believes all things. Do you know who is called love in Scripture? God. Do you know who the greatest believer in Scripture is? God. God. Who has the most faith? God. Friends, God believes in the plans that he has for your life. Do you believe in those plans? That's your desire. Say, Lord, I want to just give my life to you. I want you to fulfill your beautiful plans for my life. You may be in a moment of discouragement, confusion, but this is the time where God says you grow where you're planted. You grow and you live to the glory of God, and God will see where you need to be next. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we end this service, we just thank you for the life of Joseph. God, thank you for this man's faithfulness. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that was in this man. Thank you, God, for what you did through him in a time of trouble. And Lord, here we are in a world full of problems and dilemmas and issues. God, help us to be witnesses and to share the goodness of God with others. Thank you for the plans that you have for our lives. And right now, we're just giving our will over to you. And we choose to trust this moment, those plans. Thank you for hearing prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.